Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. At the time of Thermopylae, the Persian Empire extended from Macedonia to Egypt, and from the Middle East to the steppes of Central Asia and the valley of the Indus River in today's Pakistan. Because China was then fracturing into its age of warring states, the Empire of Persia was by far the largest unitary state in the world. It was also the first truly world empire, ruling over a dizzying diversity of lands and peoples. We can trace the origins of this immense realm back to the middle of the 6th century BCE, when the Persians broke out of their homeland in the Zagros Mountains of southern Iran and embarked on a spectacular career of military conquest under the leadership of Cyrus, a scion of the Achaemenid royal house and the first of their great kings. Cyrus's son Cambyses conquered Egypt, one of the wealthiest countries in the ancient world. His successor, Darius I, a distant relative who had married one of Cyrus's daughters, was a gifted administrator who consolidated and organized the empire. It was Darius's son, Xerxes I, who then set his sights on the conquest of Greece. Beginning with Darius I, Persians displayed a genius for government. The empire had four capitals, among which the great king and his court circulated. Basargadai, the original capital built by Cyrus, Persepolis, the main ceremonial center, Susa, the winter capital and chief administrative center, and Ekbatana, the summer capital. The empire's territories were divided into 30 provinces called satrapies, each ruled by a satrap or viceroy, most of whom were drawn from the members of the vast Achaemenid family. Persian bureaucrats meticulously surveyed the resources of each satrapy and then determined how much it should contribute to the great king in annual taxes. The proceeds of these taxes poured into the treasuries of the royal capitals. In the ruins of Persepolis, archaeologists have discovered thousands of clay tablets, the so-called fortification texts and treasury texts, which hint at the scale, sophistication, and longevity of this administrative system. The bulk of these tablets were written in Elamite cuneiform, but the empire's common language of administration was Aramaic, the same Semitic tongue spoken centuries later by a man from Nazareth named Jesus. In addition, the empire also had a common currency. Introduced by Darius I, it consisted of silver and gold coins called dariks that were stamped with the image of a running archer. For all of the Persian Empire's political centralization and bureaucratic sophistication, its yoke rested lightly on most of its subject peoples. Levels of taxation were never so heavy as to wreck local economies. More importantly, as long as the great king's subjects kept his peace, paid his taxes, and contributed troops to his armies, he and his servants largely left them alone to run their own communities, follow their time-honored customs, and worship their gods as they saw fit. The power of Persia ultimately rested on armed might on both land and sea, yet any investigation of the Persian army and navy runs immediately into a serious difficulty. 
the troves of bureaucratic documents from the imperial capitals as well as from the great satrapies of Babylon and Egypt give us tantalizing hints about certain aspects of the Persian military system. For example, Babylonian records indicate that the wealthy could fulfill their obligations as cavalrymen by a form of franchising. Such a man could hire an intermediary who would then find a substitute to perform the actual cavalry service. Furthermore, images in the form of carved reliefs, statuary, medals, and even coins give us a sense of the appearance and equipment of Persian troops. But what these bureaucratic documents and artistic images do not provide us are an overall description of the military system and an explanation of how it functioned in practice. For these, we have no choice but to turn to Herodotus. However, the father of history spoke and read only Greek. His ignorance of the languages of Persia is revealed by his comically mistaken belief that all Persian names contained the letter S. Furthermore, for all his extensive travels, which may have taken him as far east as Babylon, he never visited the imperial heartlands in Iran. But his main sources of information on the empire were Greek interlocutors who understood the imperial languages and knew about imperial affairs. Therefore, much of what he knew about the Persian Empire he received through, essentially, hearsay. This weakness, though, is more than balanced by Herodotus's good faith and his reliance on sources rather than invention. Whenever Herodotus lacks a source for a detail, no matter how crucial, he tends to omit that detail and inform his reader rather than relying on speculation. An eminent historian of the Persians, John Manuel Cook, concludes about Herodotus that there does seem to be a firm substratum of genuine historical knowledge, much of which has been obtained from Persian and Median sources. So what can Herodotus tell us about the Persian army? First and foremost, the army was as dazzlingly diverse as the empire itself. In the seventh book of the histories, Herodotus gives us an account of a great review that King Xerxes held at Doriscos in Thrace of the army that he was leading against Greece. The army had no less than 45 infantry and 11 cavalry contingents drawn from the disparate peoples of the empire. The Persians had, of course, pride of place. There were also Assyrians in bronze helmets and carrying great shields and clubs studded with iron, Scythian Saka wearing tall conical caps and armed with bows, daggers, and battle axes, Indians in cotton dress with bows and arrows of reed, Sarangians, who stood out from the rest because of their brightly dyed clothes, curly-haired Libyans, armored in leather and flourishing javelins with points hardened by fire, Arabians in flowing robes and riding camels, Ethiopians in leopard skins and lion skins, brandishing great bows and spears with points of sharpened antelope horn, Lydians bearing arms and armor like those of the Greeks, and Thracians in fox-skin caps and capes, equipped with javelins, light wicker shields, and daggers. Herodotus's muster list of Xerxes's army is one of the descriptive highlights of the histories, replete with colorful details, Homeric in tone and tenor. Yet most of the contingents listed do not then appear in Herodotus's subsequent accounts of combat. In these accounts, there are occurring mentions of the Persians, Medes, Saka, Bactrians, and Indians, both as infantry and cavalry. In addition, occasional references are made to Phrygians, 
Mysians, Thracians, Paeonians, and Ethiopians. Modern scholars have proposed various explanations for this seeming inconsistency. The one I find most plausible is that the force reviewed by Xerxes at Doriscos was a parade army, meant to display the armed might of the Persian realm and to demonstrate to the great king that his subject peoples had fulfilled their military obligations. A campaign army, chosen from the best and most dependable contingents, then did the actual fighting against the Greeks. This campaign army had, according to the best modern estimates, a strength of anything from 100,000 to 300,000 soldiers, plus an unknown but considerable number of camp followers. Most of these soldiers were infantry, capable of both missile and melee combat. The core of the army comprised Persians and Medes. The Medes were an Iranian people closely related to the Persians and were their partners in empire. The Persians and Medes were armed with long bows that shot iron-tipped reed arrows, short spears, and short swords. For protection, they used tall rectangular wicker shields called spara or garon. There is a great deal of debate about whether the Persians wore body armor. On this point, Herodotus offers contradictory evidence. In the Doriscos Review, he describes the Persians with scales of iron like in appearance to the scales of fish. But in his account of the Battle of Plataea, Herodotus stresses that the Persians were unarmored. The Greek word he uses can be translated as naked and without protective gear. This inconsistency, impossible to resolve based on the histories alone, has led to various hypotheses. One is that armor was worn only by Persian officers and picked troops. Another is that the Persians' equipment at Plataea had badly deteriorated after a long, grueling campaign, depriving them of their usual armor. What can be said with certainty, based on Herodotus's battle narratives, is that the Greeks viewed the Persians as being very lightly protected, especially when compared to hoplites. More feared by the Greeks than Xerxes's infantry was his cavalry. The Persians themselves were redoubtable horsemen. The great king could also field a wide variety of other superb cavalrymen drawn from his eastern satrapies, such as the Saka, Bactrians, and Indians. Like the infantry, the cavalry fought both from a distance and hand-to-hand. Cuneiform tablets from Babylon describe horsemen equipped with bows, swords, lances, and iron corslets. Yet in spite of their high reputations, Persian cavalry could actually do very little harm to hoplites formed in a phalanx. Because they did not have stirrups, or even the four-horned saddle that would develop later in antiquity, Persian horsemen lacked the firm and secure seat on their mounts that would have allowed them to engage in shock combat charging head-on and engaging in hand-to-hand fighting. As we'll see, Persian cavalry preferred hit-and-run tactics. In addition to infantry and cavalry, the army that invaded Greece had an elite force of picked troops, the famous immortals. In the Louvre in Paris, there is a spectacular frieze recovered from the royal palace of Susa, depicting Persian soldiers. They are clad in long, flowing robes with ample sleeves. Their heads are bare, their long curly hair held back by diadems of beaten metal. In their hands are long spears, on their shoulders long bows and quivers full of arrows. Many archaeologists and historians believe they are the personal guards of the Achaemenid kings. It is Herodotus who dubs these guards the immortals. The name, he explains, 
comes from the fact that they are always numbered 10,000. Whenever one was killed, wounded, injured, or sick, he was instantly replaced, so the corps was always kept up to strength. Herodotus also adds the indelible detail that the immortals were always gorgeously bedecked with an abundance of gold jewelry. In battle, the Persians used their infantry, cavalry, and supporting troops in tandem, one of the earliest examples of combined arms tactics in military history. Shield-bearers, Sparabara and Persian, would set up a wall of their large wicker shields. Behind this shield wall sheltered the Persian archers, who would loose volleys of arrows at the enemy. Meanwhile, the cavalry would swoop down in squadrons, shooting arrows and throwing javelins, then riding away before the enemy could catch them. Only after the foe had suffered serious losses and their formations were beginning to disintegrate from this missile storm did the Persian infantry and cavalry rush into hand-to-hand combat to finish them off. These tactics had proven to be highly effective. According to Herodotus, the Persians had only suffered two serious defeats during the conquest of their empire. The Persians were even more formidable in the wider aspects of warfare, such as logistics, intelligence, and command and control. Administrative genius and vast financial resources allowed the Persians to raise huge armies, move them great distances, and maintain them for long periods in enemy country. To ease the movements of the great king's soldiers and ships, Persian engineers could accomplish awe-inspiring feats of building. To carry Xerxes' invasion army across the Hellespont, the modern Dardanelles Strait in Turkey, the engineers built two pontoon bridges, each more than two kilometers long. When a storm destroyed the original bridges, they were replaced by two more of an improved design, so that the Persian fleet could avoid sailing around the tempest-tossed tip of the Athos Peninsula in northern Greece the engineers dug a canal across its neck. The canal took thousands of laborers three years to complete. Less spectacular, perhaps, than the bridges in the canal, but no less impressive in their own way, were the four roads laid across the race for the march of the army. They were so well constructed that the Roman historian Livy attested that they were still in use three centuries after Thermopylae. The Persians were also masters of intelligence and diplomatic warfare. They developed one of the world's first professional espionage services. Great kings and their commanders made exceptional use of any information gathered by their spies. On campaign, the Persians usually had a comprehensive understanding of the strengths and weaknesses of their enemies, as well as thorough knowledge about the ground on which they were fighting. Furthermore, the Persians excelled at exploiting internal divisions among their opponents. They were aided in this by their huge wealth, which they used to suborn traitors and undermine alliances. Perhaps the best example of this Persian strength comes from almost a century after the invasions of Greece. In 394 BCE, the Spartan king Agesilaus was waging a successful campaign in Asia Minor against the western satrapies of the empire. Suddenly, he had to return home because King Artaxerxes II had bribed the Athenians, Thebans, and Corinthians to declare war against Sparta. Agesilaus declared that he was being driven out of Asia by the great king with the aid of 30,000 archers. And by archers, he meant gold derricks. These Persian masteries of logistics and intelligence were exercised by an extremely effective headquarters. In contrast to the Greeks, 
who, as we'll see, even under the threat of conquest, remained split into numerous city-states, each jealously guarding its independence. The Persians enjoyed unity of command. Great King Xerxes was in complete control of both his vast heterogeneous army and his huge fleet. He and his subordinates meticulously planned the invasion of Greece so that in just three months they were able to bring their army and fleet across southeastern Europe from the Dardanelles to Athens, despite the best Greek efforts to stop them. The Persians were thus vastly superior to the Greeks in what general staff officers and military theorists call the higher levels of warfare, the operational and strategic levels. But the Persians even had advantages on the tactical battlefield level. Their wider variety of troops gave them much greater flexibility than the Greeks. They could respond both more quickly and more effectively to changing combat situations. This all begs the question, then, how could the Persians have lost? The simple answer is that the Greeks had one trick up their sleeves that the Persians were never able to match, the Hoplite Charge. The Persians found their wicker shields and body armor, that is if they wore any, willfully inadequate protection against Hoplite spears. By contrast, their own hand-to-hand -hand weapons were outmatched by Greek arms and armor. Herodotus notes that Persian spears were shorter than those of the Hoplites. Furthermore, the historian stresses that the Persians were not as accustomed as their adversaries to close combat. At the Battle of Plataea, the Persians, in desperation but also with immense courage, used their bare hands to seize and break their enemy's spears. Perhaps most importantly, the Persians could not come close to matching the cohesion and determination possessed by the Greek Hoplites thanks to the communal solidarity of the phalanx. Thus, in a stand-up fight, relatively small numbers of Hoplites could overrun and kill very large numbers of Persian infantry. In the next part of this podcast, I will turn to the origins and opening events of the Persian Wars. My goal will be to describe and explain how and why the Greeks and the Persians clashed in the narrow pass of Thermopylae in the summer of 480 BCE.